Awesome. Veterans Day. So, since Tuesday is Veterans Day, I'd like to honor everybody who has served or is serving our nation right now in the military. If you would please stand so we can thank you and recognize you for your service. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. It's because of men and women like you guys who serve us to protect us, our homes, our lives, our freedoms, that we can do what we do here this morning, and that makes us special in the world. So I appreciate that, and I know all of us as well do, so thank you very much. Um, In addition to that, um, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, so we could have that awesome thrown up there. Um, You guys all received one of these, so we're going to come back to that in a bit. So we'll be talking about Pastor Saeed later on in the service, and I'll explain what that's used for. But like Pastor Paul said, Andre has run the last six or seven weeks here, and I'm not at all trying to redo what he's done in the sermons. Uh, and it is a different topic today, but at the same time, you know, the thought hit me this morning that this, the, the series that he preached might not get preached in Pakistan. It's going to be preached in America and the West. Because, see, if we use the analogy of the sports arena, when the fans come to watch the players hit the field and do their thing, well, if you use that analogy spiritually speaking, I don't think there's many fans of Jesus Christ in Pakistan. They're all following because they know what it costs. They show up to play, and there's a few people in the field, but the stands are empty, so to speak. But here in America, see, we have pleasures and riches, and we don't often experience persecution firsthand, so we need to be reminded of that. So what we hit was extremely important the last six weeks, and um, it was very pertinent, and we need that. I know I need that in my life, but in perspective... I'm not idolizing or setting our persecuted brothers and sisters up here because we worship God, not them. But I will tell you, from the things that I've learned and uh, read about and seen on the news articles, I respect them because their life sharpens me and it makes me appreciate what they do for us and what they do serving Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today is um, our text is 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I'm going to go ahead and open in prayer and then we can turn there. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you just for the opportunity to sit here in this church, um, Lord, to worship you. That's our first goal, first and foremost. And God, I just do pray that your spirit would be evident among us, um, Lord, that we'd be filled with that. And Lord, I pray that the words that I speak, Lord, would give you honor and glory, and Lord, would just build your church. And I ask this in your name, amen. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be parked here the whole service, so just keep your Bible open to that. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, what we have in context is you have the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Timothy, who he discipled. And Timothy's a young pastor, probably in his 20s or 30s at the time. And this is a word of exhortation to him as he's going out, and he's leaving the uh, apprenticeship of Paul. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 here to start off. So his words to Timothy are these. He says, But realize this that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutals, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, 
although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. So, looking at that text right there in the first five verses, he talks about in the last days. A lot of times we like to think that we're living in the last days, and quite honestly, I think that we are. But at the same time, Paul's writing this to Timothy almost 2,000 years ago, living in the last days. And we see that all of these mindsets and these sins and these attitudes that are evident today within the world, arrogant, no reconciliation, disrespectful children, no self-control, and so forth, they existed back then. People have been people. Kids are kids. Times may change, but the sins remain the same. So looking at that, you know, I was, the thought that I had to hit me, first of all, was I thought of our culture in America, and I thought of a statistic that Andre presented to you guys, which has been around, that 80% of the young people, teens and college students, when they grow up, I hope it's not the case in Garden Chapel, but they leave the church because they find that it's not relevant. And we'll talk about that. But with that, I, looked at, I had to do a hard look at myself and not to share my whole testimony, but, you know, I grew up a Garden Chapel kid. I got saved when I was five. I knew what I was doing. I understood what sin was and that I was bad and I was going to hell as a result of that. And I needed Jesus to save me from my sins. But at the same time, I grew up in a Christian culture. See, my parents are first-generation believers in Christ. They got saved at Pastor Paul's Bible study so many years ago when I was two. So what, 31 years ago, I guess. And I grew up in the culture of the church. And it was real. I believe it. I know that I'm saved. Knew I was saved, but I guarantee you I wasn't living it. And see, that's a dangerous thing. So teens, let me tell you something. All right, this is from first-hand experience. If you're a junior, senior high, or college, don't fall in the trap I did. Because, see, I fell into a lot of those things. I was maybe not outright disobedient to my parents and my actions, because I had everybody fooled at Garden Chapel. I was this person here and another person inside and elsewhere. And, you know, you guys who are teenagers, you need to understand that what you're growing up in isn't just a culture that you need to defend your faith for yourself or else we're going to lose it. It is extremely real. It's extremely relevant to you as teenagers because you're going to leave this church. You're going to go to college. You're going to get married. I don't know where God's going to send you, but if you don't have a grasp in a relationship with Jesus Christ that's alive and active and it's just something you do, you're going to forget about it. You're going to get sucked into the world, you're going to get sucked into the entertainment, sucked into whatever it is, and it's going to destroy you. And then unfortunately, I prayed that this would happen, that there's going to come a day you come crawling back to Jesus, but man, spare yourself that, because you're going to waste time. Know what you believe. Kyle and Cody are teaching a class starting December 2nd. Defend your faith and know why you believe what you believe. Go to that class. So either way, that was my life. I easily could have been that statistic. Praise God, he saved me from that, and then I'm still here. But so many young people leave because they don't see Christianity or the relationship with Jesus as something that's important, that's relevant. So either way, that stood out to me there. At the end times, there's going to be so many confusing spirits and things among men that they don't understand. 
And, you know, another thing with that is if you look at the word, the word godliness in there, notice it's not capitalized. We're supposed to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But godliness, in a sense, you could substitute that word godliness there with the word religion. And religion, apart from Jesus Christ, is just people trying to do the right thing and make God happy. Make Jesus happy, make Allah happy, do the things that Buddha said, make other people happy so it looks like you're doing good and you're probably a good person if you do that. That's religion. But see, they denied its power. That's what it talks about. In a godly person with a lowercase g, people who are doing that don't know the power of Jesus Christ. I want to, something, a perspective, I guess, that everybody, we have different perspectives with where God has planted us in our lives, um, where we all have different jobs, my realm being education. So what I tried this year is I asked my students some questions on the first day of school. And I always try and do something different each year to get to know the kids. And I liked what I did, so I'm like, keep this. Is I gave them this paper with 34 questions they had to answer. And at first, they're like, are you serious? But either way, it was interesting, because I took them home over Labor Day break, and I read these. I'll tell you what, that was the most insightful thing I ever think I did as a teacher, is getting to know my kids by asking them 34 questions. And that was all kinds of stuff from like, what's your favorite dinner? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite football, baseball team? But then there's other questions, um, like this one. What's one thing you've always wondered about? Or, is there anything I should know about you? Those were some interesting answers, by the way. Ask a, ask a seventh grade student, is there anything I should know about you when they don't have to tell you, they write it down? It's interesting. But either way, here's some of the responses I got. So I have probably, I don't know, a dozen of them or so. So as I started reading this answer, how do you get the hiccups? Deep? It's good? All right. How's cheese made? Smoked Gouda is very good. I just had that recently. How much wood could woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? No lie. My answer is, if they could, a lot, but they can't. So those are some of the responses I got, which I got a laugh out of. But then as I started reading these, I don't know, God just slammed me with a two-by-four across the head because it woke me up. See, my perspective as a teacher is this my mission field is I'm there, and it's a tricky situation working in public ed sometimes because you can actually do as a teacher a lot more proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in a public school than people have led on to. But you still have to be smart. But either way, that's my mission field. So here's other answers I got, answers I got to that floored me. And with this survey, out of a little over 100 students, I'd say 50% of my kids left this blank. I probably would have left it blank too in seventh grade because I wouldn't know what to think. 25% of them gave me how much wood could a woodchuck chuck answers. But the other 25%, check it, here it is. Here's what they gave me. These kind of questions. There we go. Did we, as human beings, evolve or we created? Now they're getting that in science. You know. I got, how was God born? Triple question mark. I didn't do that. That was them. How did God create us? Why are we here? And they weren't talking about school. I mean, they were talking like literally, why are we? At least I hope. I think that's what they meant. All right? And then they also, are we real? And at first, I'm like, are you kidding me? But let me tell you something. Young people, learn to think for yourselves, first of all. I teach social studies, and I tell my kids that social studies, if you don't like history, that's okay, but I'm teaching you to think. 
for yourself. Same deal as adults. Man, we got this amazing power of our young people. I'm not joking when I tell you, I could tell 50%, convince 50% of my kids that we're not real, and that we live in some time warp type thing, and, you know, that science has proved it. And I guarantee you, if I said that enough and explained it in a really slick way, they'd buy it. That scares me. The kids are asking me, are we real? Mike Sutton said to me, he, uh, I guess once Ravi Zacharias asked him that, and Ravi Zacharias' answer is, well, who's asking me? I thought that was pretty good. Anyways, <laughs> next questions, or next answers. What happens after we die? Why do bad things happen to good people? Twelve-year-olds want to know. Is heaven actually real? Now, they're just asking, is heaven real? They're asking, is heaven actually real? So they have doubt. They're not just questioning, there's doubt associated with that. What's it like in heaven? How will the world end? As I looked at these, and some of these answers were actually like four and five times, some of them, blew me away. And so for me, it was like, man, this is what I need to do. This is why I'm here. And how can I minister to these kids? How can I give them the gospel? How can I tell them about Jesus in a smart way? But how can I do that? Because people are hungry to know. And see, i got to make sure I stay on topic. But people are hungry for the truth. Whether you're talking about 12-year-old students in Middletown Middle School... Whether you're talking about anybody in the world, the people you work with want to know. But see, I know for me, and I talk to my coworkers, people are so shy to say the word Jesus. I said the word Jesus one time when I was teaching class. I'm looking at you can't do that. Why? He's a person. He's God. You know, he's in history. It's about him. But either way, these are things that we need to look at. But see, in First Timothy or Second Timothy three one through five. We don't talk about this stuff. People don't want to talk about it. They're going to do what they want to do. And this is the time we live in. We live in the end of the age, which has been going on for quite a long time, by the way. It's not just we're in the end of the age. It's been going on for a long time. So anyways, to keep going with that, let's move on. So in verse 6, it says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Two words I want to look at in verse 6. When he talks about for those who enter, you could also say creep. Um, those who creep into households. So with that, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing leaders back then. Obviously, Paul's addressing this with Timothy. Leaders who were manipulating, abusing their authority to get what they wanted. You take it for what you want, what it means, and what they were doing, but that's what was taking place. And unfortunately, in Christendom today, we have leaders who are doing that. And then they're deceiving people who in turn are deceiving other people because of whatever motives they have, whether it's out of ignorance, out of deception, because out of gain. But then there's a lot of people also in the end times that we talk about who are always learning, which is learning is good. Or I'd be out of a job, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you look up the word knowledge in the context, it's talking about recognition. Well, the word recognition, when you talk about that, it's they understand it and they know it to be true, and they live it out that way. It's not just a knowledge. Hey, I know Jesus. Yeah. Well, there's no and there's no, K-N-O-W. 
There's a difference between the two. You recognize it and you validate that in the way that you live your life. And see, these people, there's many of them who even go under the name of Christian. And unfortunately, my heart breaks because I know people like this. who I'm not sure where they're at spiritually. They might be saved. I don't know. But, man, they're constantly learning. And they like to wax philosophic and go on and on and on. I don't know. But where are they at? I have a family member who none of you know, thankfully, so I can bring him up, who likes to have, and he'll tell you this, discussions to answer questions. Problem is, the discussions never answer questions. They just pros more. And he's actually paid to have discussions about spiritual things, which I think, again, going back to the young people, you guys got it tough. Because... There's so many things thrown at you about what the Bible says, what the Bible does not say, what it means, what it does not mean. That if I was a young person and I didn't have my head screwed on, I hope I do, but I don't have it screwed on straight, I'd be like, why should I believe this stuff? People are fighting about it. They can't even figure out what it means. Scary times we live in because Satan has figured out how to deceive people, how to trick the minds of people. Learning's great and discussions are great. But, We need to take a look at that. And when we go against those things, you're going to see in the next verses, the persecution is going to take place. Um, So in verse 8, it says, Just as Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres, if you remember the story of Moses, when he goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No. Janus and Jambres were the sorcerers who manipulated, duplicated the miracles of God. So when he chucks his staff down and becomes a snake, well, theirs became snakes. But God's snake swallowed theirs. When God turned the Nile River to blood, they turned the Nile River to blood. And so forth. There were miracles that they duplicated. Hey, guys, don't forget. How did that happen? I strongly believe that we sometimes forget there's a spiritual war and Satan empowers people Satan is not one to be taken lightly. And he duplicated these things. I don't know how, but he did. But the thing is, in there... Oh, and this is really cool, too. My history teacher's coming out here in a second. But when I first learned this about that uh, story of old Moses, how cool is it with our God that when he put those ten plagues on Egypt, he was humiliating the gods of Egypt. I don't know if you guys ever realized that before, but every single plague, and I'm not going to do each one, represented an attack or showing God's superiority over those gods. For example, the Nile River was thought to be a god. I mean, it's the middle of the desert. So they believed that the god, the Nile River, H-A-P-I, H-A-P-I, they call him Hopi, would flood every year and bring them fertile soil and good crops. It was a god. Well, he turned it to blood. Then Hathor. Okay, is the Egyptian cow goddess, goddess fertility. Well, what did Aaron make the people of Israel and what they request? They wanted to worship the gods of Egypt, so he built them a golden cow. They wanted to worship Hathor. And then the coolest one, in my opinion, is Ra was the sun god of Egypt, the chief main god. He knocked his lights out. God turned him black, and he created complete darkness. The god to whom darkness is light. Think about, wrap your head around that one a little bit. We have an amazing God. So this is what he does. But see, Janus and Jambres, what they did in trying to replicate these miracles is they tried to persecute. And they opposed Moses and the people of Israel going against the will of God. See, when people stand up for God's will, guaranteed they're going to be opposed. I have a note here that says, in their arrogance, 
Okay? They persecuted God's people. They mocked God, but they didn't know who they were messing with. Because then, in verse 9, here's what it says. It says, But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice's and Jambres's folly was also. I don't know about you guys, but if you're like me, I don't know, I hold things in, and I get depressed sometimes. And when I do persecution news, and I read it, and I teach social studies and do current events, it depresses me. I get tired of looking at it. And there's times that I'm like, eh, not today. Just don't have, I can't. It's just depressing. Sometimes like, God, when? How long is it going to take? I've gotten to that age, young guys. People, you will get there. Dave said that in Good News. I'm younger than Dave, and I'm there. I used to think, oh, God, just wait until you fill in the blank. No, he can come. I'm starting to get knee pain, too, as well. So there are certain things. I just remember, how long? And we get this defeated mentality, and we're like, this just sucks. I hate it. But that's the wrong attitude. We're going to talk about that. But anyways... Here's the cool part, which is why that's the wrong attitude. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, and you guys will know this, okay? And you have a line at the end, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You ready? It says, so at, the name of Jesus, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and at the, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Or who said that? My man. Amen, people. That is it. Because see, when we understand how it ends, our heart says amen. And we understand that we have the victory. We know that even though it's awful right now, and terrible things are happening, and we sometimes start to despair, and we lose hope, and we're like, God, how much longer? Why are these things happening? I don't understand it. See, we have to remember that God gave us the book of Revelation through John, and that we know in Revelation 19, our Jesus is going to come down on a white horse, and we're going to be riding with Him. Now that also is a very sobering. Not ex- it's exciting. If you keep reading in Revelation 19, there's some homework for you. It's a very sobering thing as well as to what Jesus does. Is he destroys his enemies who rejected him and hated him. And ultimate, sincere, what's the word I want? Pure, I guess, judgment is going to take place. God warned us about that. But see, there's going to come a day where even though it seems like our enemies, and Satan's truly our enemy, so don't misunderstand me. People are not our enemies. It's Satan. But sometimes we consider Muslims or Hindus or people who oppose us to be our enemies. There's going to come a day when it's no longer the case. They're the enemies of Jesus Christ. Okay? And we once were as well. See, that's a proper perspective. All of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were once enemies. And I think when you understand that, which is still hard to do, that gives a different perspective for the Muslim across the world or maybe even who you work with and how you feel about them and how we treat them. I don't have all the answers on that, believe me. But either way, they're not going to make further progress. There will come a day when God says, enough. But while we're here, we're called to love these people. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That's what we're called to do. So as Christians, all right, the first verse on there in the slide, and I go, if I would go back to the first one, it's Hebrews 13.3. And it tells us to be in prison with them, to bear their burdens with them as though we're in prison with them because Saeed and all the other persecuted people are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We owe that to them. 
They're a part of the same body. When one person suffers, we all suffer together with them, which is why we're doing this today. Verse 10. Paul then tells Timothy, he said he now gets personal and relates his past experiences with him. He says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. So, I mean, you look at Timothy. I mean, this guy is a, not just a brother. He's a true brother. I mean, he's been with him through it all. I mean, he's followed in him in obedience. He shared the same heartbeat with him. He's been patient. He's been through the persecutions and suffering with Paul. I mean, this guy has been through the fire with him, and he's reminding him of what he's been through. And then, you know, if you don't remember, if you, well, about Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, you can look in Acts 13 and 14. But in Acts 13, when Paul was in Antioch, the people kicked him out. They said, get out of here. We don't want to hear your message. So they chased him to Iconium. And Iconium, they attempted to stone him to death, Paul kept on preaching in Lystra. He was stoned to death. And then, I believe, he was raised up. But he was left for dead. So you see the progression of persecution. So we ask ourselves, when we mention the name of Jesus to somebody, A, you know, what's, what's our comfort level with that? But at the same time, um, are, we, are we worried about losing our job, getting kicked out? Are we, being, are we worried about being rejected? Because the next step was Paul was persistent. He knows that he has to obey Jesus Christ, not man. That's who he's there to please because he's going to worship Jesus Christ in eternity. And that person here, that's just for a season. And then yet he was willing to take persecution to the next level and the next. That's what he does. And in verse 12, this is where it hits home. I think this is like the headline of the sermon. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't take me wrong, please, because I'm talking about myself. I'm asking myself the same question, okay? So don't take me wrong. Are you being persecuted? If your answer is no, why not? Now, straight up, I'm not being persecuted. But see, maybe I can ask it this way. What are you doing as you live your Christian life that that could predispose you to being persecuted? That's a question that needs to be answered for each one of us. Because Jesus tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, that his followers, if they're walking in obedience, they will be persecuted. It's going to happen. For example, I use this analogy at the end of my sermon, at the end, in 8 o'clock, but I use it now because I just thought of it. Um, in Houston, Texas, a few weeks ago, some of you guys might know where I'm heading with this, the mayor of Houston um, wanted all of the pastor's sermon tapes for such and such dates back. The reason was because they wanted to, she wanted to know what they were saying about what the Bible says about homosexuality. See, I don't believe that these pastors were slamming people who are homosexual. I believe, hopefully, every single one of you love people who are homosexual, because Jesus does too. See, but the thing is, the attack on that, people don't want to accept what the Word of God says verbatim, face value, so then it's persecuted. These pastors in Houston were, on a light level, actually, being persecuted. 
We got a new governor coming up. Is he going to sanction this tape and ask what I said about homosexuality or what Pastor Paul says? I don't know. But it very well could happen. What are we doing? I'm not saying we have to go try and get persecuted. That's crazy. You're nuts if you do. But at the same time, I mean, that's how we should be living our life. So that's a very sobering thought to think that we need to be living that way. Because I think a lot of times we say Jesus and we look around. Who's looking? I know teaching, I I teach, most of you know me pretty well, but I teach ancient history to seventh graders. So in ancient history, I mean, come on, I got the Hebrews and Moses is there. And with with Rome, I got Christianity. So, I mean, I teach Jesus to the kids. And I'm not embarrassed to do it, but I remember I've had kids like, you can't teach this us. Teach this to us. Yeah, I can. Check the curriculum. There was a visitor one day standing outside my door, and she's like, what are you guys doing, Sunday school? No, I'm teaching history. But the thing is, we need to teach Jesus for who he is. People are hungry. Remember those questions? They want to know. If we don't tell them because we're embarrassed to be being persecuted or fear that, we're not being obedient. The song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Eight o'clock service sang that. That's what it's all about. It's obedience. So let's take some time here to take a look at what's going on. That's why we're here today to learn about persecution. So we get from, what is come on, Chris, let's hear the update. Here it is. So different things going on. Pakistan, you guys are familiar with Asia Bibi, who is on death row in their country for her witness for Jesus. Now she's been on there, I believe, four years. Here's a different case. Um, the, ma- the male, the husband, is Shazad and his wife Shama. Masai, Matt, whatever. But Shama was pregnant, all right, when this happened. And this was just this week. Shazad and Shama worked in a brickyard. Now, you got to understand in these countries like Egypt and Pakistan, there's a caste system, even if it's unspoken, where Christians, unfortunately, are at the bottom of that. And they're not able to get the jobs that other people would be able to have, those high-profile jobs. So you're going to find, if you start doing your research, that many Christians in these countries like Egypt and Pakistan, a brick laborer is quite a common occupation, is what they do. So anyways, what happened this week, according to the BBC, is there was a crowd of over 3,000, a mob of 3,000, and they accused Shazad and Shama of tearing pages out of the Quran and desecrating it. Whether they did or not, I can't say. I know 100% for sure. My intuition, they never did that. Because you're also going to find, as you start reading more and more of these things, that two of the most popular accusations against Christians in these Muslim-dominated countries is defaming Allah or Muhammad or tearing pages out of the Quran. I mean, it's like textbook. What they did this week is they took this pregnant mother and her husband and they burnt them alive in the kiln. Okay, that happened this week. Chiapas, if you follow, if you're a baseball fan like me, you know Little League World Series. The Chiapas team from Mexico is usually right up there. They're really good. So you might have heard of Chiapas there from southern Mexico. But according to the International Christian Concern, or ICC, you can visit their website at persecution.org, um, Chiapas has one of the highest rates of religious freedom violations in the Western Hemisphere. So, now, what's going on there is interesting because it's kind of like Christians persecuting Christians in this case. Because Mexico is extremely, I guess you would say, Catholic. All right? And what I mean by that is they also take Catholicism 
And it's morphed with syncretistic beliefs, where syncretism is taking a lot of your animistic and traditional beliefs, and then they take those and morph them into Catholicism, all right? And that is what you do. And they're also very violent about how they handle this. So the Protestant Christians in Mexico are the minority. And I'll read this just so I don't screw the details up, because this one I don't have memorized. But basically it says that, um, that in that area that Protestants are subjected to forced conversions to Catholicism, and they're forced also to participate in religious festivals. If they don't, here's the things that are happening in Mexico, just south of us, that these people's families, their kids are excluded from public education, they're um, banned, or their electricity is turned off, they don't have access to water, um, they don't, ha- don't have access to farmland, churches are times destroyed, there's violence and expulsion from the community. Now, we think of Mexico as, yes, it's maybe not up to the standards we expect, but it's still in the free world, so to speak. This is just happening south of the border. We also have Iran. So this is the time. Let's take our cards out. All right, so thank you all of you guys who helped me out with this. This was last minute. So I'm not a Facebooker. My wife is. Okay, so I sometimes tease her about Facebook, but there are good things on Facebook. This is one of them. So many of, you, many of you who do Facebook might have seen this, but this is endorsed by the ACLJ, the American Center for Law and Justice, who's been the biggest advocate for Pastor Saeed in Iran. If you don't know who he is, he's an American pastor who was in Iran, and they imprisoned him two years ago for preaching the gospel as his charges. So anyways, his wife, Nagma Abedini, has been lobbying with our government for the past two years for his release, along with the ACLJ. And I know we've talked about him many times here as well, but anyways... What's happening on November 24th, which is just right around the corner from us, which is why we have these, is President Obama is meeting with the Iranian leaders. They're coming to the White House. They did the same thing two years ago to discuss nuclear arms. Well, two years ago, Nagma and the ACLJ, they sent, according to them, over 80,000 postcards asking for the release of Pastor Saeed, but to no avail. At that time, President Obama and John Kerry hadn't recognized even his imprisonment. Since then, they've spoken out against it, but we still have not seen Pastor Saeed released. So what I'm asking you, on behalf of Nagma and the ACLJ, is we got these printed off. All it costs you is a stamp. And where it says, sincerely, sign your name. So I would sign mine, Chris and Mindy Etter, Harrisburg, PA. And I'm going to be honest with you, because I know there's cynics out there just like me. Some intern at the White House is probably going to take this and go... And shred it. I hope not. But if they do, it's not on us. We've been obedient. And you know what? That intern's going to see it. And maybe it's going to get the right intern. And maybe the president will see these. I don't know, but we've done our job to advocate for Pastor Saeed and another brother who's been deprived health care, separated from his wife, and his mother has just had to flee the country as well, his last remaining relative, and now he's on his own. So pray for Pastor Saeed. I encourage you guys, please take these. Um, There's 500 total, so if you want more, see me. I'll make sure you get them. Um, But anyways, that's Pastor Saeed's update. Thank you for sending those postcards. Nigeria, I know we're very invested in Nigeria. Um, Jim's there. I know that with the Missions Committee, the focus concern is West Africa. Nigeria fits the bill, the most populated country in, in Africa as a whole. 
Um, so you guys are familiar from our updates with the Islamic and Christian strife, and you also probably remember the Bring Home Our Girls campaign that I think even Michelle Obama got involved with. So this is a picture from Fox News of those girls, but now what the leaders of Boko Haram say is these kidnapped girls, predominantly, the press will tell you, predominantly Christian by name, they're, they're targeting, they've now married them to Islamic men and converted them against their will. So that's what's going on in Nigeria. Iraq. We know about ISIS. So what ISIS has been doing is in northern Iraq, near Mosul and these other areas, the Christians have fled to refugee camps. In order to make sure the Christians don't return, ISIS has, in a sense, to use a word picture, staked their flag there. Well, the way they've stuck their flag in the dirt is by rigging the Christians' homes and the people's homes with bombs. So that if they do return, they get blown up. So they've rigged the roads and with bombs. This is what's going on in Iraq. And this is the talk about um, Paul was telling Timothy, in the last days, these things are going to happen. It was happening then, it's happening now. In America, we live here, so I hope we'd be most familiar with this. Now, granted, I've yet to see someone be killed for their faith. I've yet to see someone make the headlines for being arrested for their faith, although, believe me, I believe it's coming soon. People have lost their jobs. People have been ridiculed. Families disowned them and said they're crazy. But right here, this is just my opinion. This isn't a news headline. But I think increasing opposition towards the absolutes of the Bible and those who adhere to them is the biggest persecutor. Because people don't want to take the Bible for what it is, the Word of God, which we're going to get to here in a minute. It's the Word of God. And God doesn't apologize for what He says. He says what He means and means what He says. But there's Christians and other people out there who are going to argue that. And see, I, oh man, I forgot this. Wow, I knew I forgot something. See, this is the other thing which is so important, is what we need to do is with understanding how important the Word of God is, talking about American persecution, us parents in the room and grandparents and whoever else you are with your interactions with kids, see, we have a huge obligation to teach the Word of God for what it is. Because when we don't, and we teach it without being persuaded that God is who He says He is, we're doing our kids a disservice, especially if we don't know what the Bible says. See, Bible stories are great, but the problem is they're stories. And our kids get plenty of stories. They like to read stories. There's Cinderella as well and Frozen. They like to learn about Elsa. It's a story. They're not stories. They're historical accounts of what God's done. And we need to be very careful of how we present those. Because when we present them as fictitious fairy tales, accidentally, innocently, we don't try it, we're setting our kids up to think that this is just something else. And they don't understand why they believe what they believe. They don't know how to defend it. So that goes back to Kyle and Cody again. I meant to put that in there and I forgot. So your class is, I'm, I'm excited about that. But we need to make sure we carry that because we have a huge responsibility to teach the God unapologetically to our kids and make sure we're doing that on a consistent basis. Because if persecution comes and comes to grow, our kids aren't going to know what to do. That's the generation that's going to have to have this firsthand. They're going to be the front lines when it continues to get worse. All right, got that. All right, let's continue reading. I'm moving my notes. What am I thinking? All right, here we go. Verses uh, 13 through 15. It says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We covered that. You, however, continue in the things you have learned 
and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So he's telling him, look, I taught you these things. Follow them. And that's what we're called to do. And from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So let me pause there and stop. See, this is Persecution Sunday, and we're talking and and exhorting you guys in these things. But i got to stop to say that if you have no clue what we're talking about today, and you don't know what faith that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ is, you're probably thinking, what are these people talking about? America is the land of the free, the home of the brave, and all is well. Get a grip. But see, the thing is, Jesus died for each one of us because we're sinners. We were once his enemies, but he died for us. And we're called to love the persecutors who persecute us and our brothers and sisters. But if you don't know him today, man, see somebody, talk to one of us, and we'd be glad to share with you the love of Jesus Christ and how he died for the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, that we might know him. It's not just about going to heaven, but it's about knowing him personally as a Savior and having that relationship with him. So finally, as we wrap up here, verse 16 and 17 are kind of the home run pitch. So here it is. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul's not given a defense of Scripture here. And, I mean, sure, it shows us that Scripture is the ultimate authority. And that's right on. But what he's telling Timothy, practically speaking, is, look, man, this is God's Word. Handle it accurately. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. Know it. Make it a part of you. That's what he's saying to him. So in closing, again, I've got to read my lines so I don't mess up. But what it says is my question for me and you is this. Are we intentionally taking time to learn, know, understand, apply, and practice? And I know some of those I used, the, I had a word messed up last service. They're synonymous synonyms. Sounds good. I like it. So those synonymous synonyms like apply and practice, yeah, it's the same thing. But at the same time, they're all slightly different. Are we doing those things? Understanding, applying, and practicing God's Word. Now here, this is another one. Are we taking time to teach ourselves? Because we're just teaching our kids, not teaching ourselves, we're screwing up. And we can't teach our kids if we're not teaching ourselves because then we don't know what we're talking about. Are we teaching ourselves and our children... How to defend the faith. How to, how to, God doesn't need us to stand up for him. That's not what I'm saying. But are we teaching our kids and ourselves how to obey Jesus? See, we don't need to shout and yell and try and sign petitions, which are all good things to do, to let people know how we feel. We just need to obey Jesus. And when we obey Jesus, our actions speak louder than our words if we're going to serve him wholeheartedly and committedly. Now, here's another sobering thought. Again, don't misunderstand me. People are not our enemies. Satan is. However, I wrote down that our enemies are training their kids. Okay? Atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, whoever. I guarantee you they're training their kids up in the way they think they should go. If our kids don't know how to answer that, they're going to go that way. The way that they're training their kids to go. 
That's a sobering thought. That's what our persecuted brothers and sisters are up against. So in closing, God has given us the whole of Scripture that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work. So are we in the Word of God? Are we knowing it? Are we obeying Jesus and living that out? That's how we support the persecuted church. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Jesus, we thank you that, um, that you are our Lord and our Savior, that you died for us and you rose again and you conquered death and we can live for you. Help us to have courage, Lord. I'm ashamed of many times when I know that I'm not as bold as I need to be. Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, who are on the front lines and, Lord, they're following you. And I uh, just do pray that you continue to sharpen them and strengthen them. We pray for uh, the captives released like Saeed. And, Lord God, that you be honored and glorified through your church. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you.